I've, I've got some information. I've got some information from you from the shipping container. Some dude on Twitter says he's going to LA. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, that's it. That's some dude who apparently is close to LeBron is tweeting people, telling them, trophy time, get ready to all the people in LA. Tweet Kyle Kuzma, you tweet a carry champion, you know, all the Laker luminaries. Right, but who is this dude? Like, I have dudes, to, you know, they're tweeting me that he's coming to Miami. So. He's, he's some dude. It, uh, he's, he's no inferno, let me put that way. He's no inferno? No, he's okay. just some dude need to pump up my main man cuffs. First of all, we like on this show and in life, I like to buy value stocks, buy them low before they pop, right? You like to buy low, sell high. I told you guys about Cuffs the Legend a while back. He's been out there, you know, Kevin Durant's in his Instagram mentions. Uh, He's friendly with LeBron. He's gotten in with the NBA players. I'm just telling you guys, you want to buy an early NBA stock. This guy is funny. He's interesting. He's plugged in. You've got to kind of read between the lines as to what he's saying on some stuff. Our next guest is an NBA analyst, a basketball trainer, and a social media influencer. He goes by the name of Cuffs, the legend. And you can follow him on Twitter right there. At Cuffs, C-U-F-F-S, The Legend. Welcome to the Some Dude Show. I am your host, Cuffs, The Legend. There's no other podcast like this in the entire world. And I'm going to prove that. I just got a couple PSAs I want to get off my chest. A couple random NBA observations. Just some random observations as I sit back and watch this NBA season unfold. Russell Westbrook, welcome to the Los Angeles Lakers, Westbrook. Russell Westbrook is officially a Los Angeles Laker now. You saw him square up last night like Sugar Ray Leonard. He came to the defense of his teammate, LeBron damn James. This is the energy that we need. This is the energy we've all been wanting to see from the Lakers. We're going to look back at this first 20 games or so of the season. You know, it started out kind of rocky. It's been a tumultuous beginning of the season for the Lakers. But we're going to look back in a couple months and we're going to laugh at this. We're going to laugh at this. We're going to laugh at this at the championship parade. And all you fickle Laker fans out there talking about Trey Westbrook. We got to get rid of Russ. The jig is hovering on you. Do not ask me for tickets to the parade. Do not ask me for anything. Do not call me. Do not text me. Because you are not getting any VIP access from some dude. Because you full of shit. But somebody is getting shipped out, though. (laughs) Somebody on the L.A. Lakers is getting shipped Amazon Prime. I'm not saying any names, but somebody's ass getting shipped out Amazon Prime. And you know the scariest part about it is, about this Lakers team, I feel like nobody in the organization really knows that Frank Vogel is not the guy. It's just fascinating to watch. So I got to ask Rob Palenka, do you lie to yourself, Rob, or do you handle business? Because we all see what needs to be Shuffled around We all see the little changes We need to make with this roster And I love Westbrook But I feel like the Lakers Should find Westbrook A hundred dollars cash One hundred smackaroos Every time you shoot a three-pointer Russ Just shoot your mid-range Attack the basket Do what you do well But y'all gonna laugh Y'all gonna laugh at this one Y'all gonna laugh I know you are 
But I feel like the Lakers, we got to go out. We got to give the bag to either David Blatt or Mike D'Antoni because we need an offensive guru on the sideline. Frank Vogel, we all know, is a defensive guru. But I don't see the Lakers having any there's any creativity offensively. There's no off-ball screens, no flares, no pin downs, no off-ball action. We need to get an offensive guru on the sideline. I think Laker fans, we all love to see that. Ben Simmons does love living in L.A. I just want to say that. I'm just saying. Ben Simmons, he loves the L.A. lifestyle. I'm just saying. Chris Paul. Chris Paul is in the MVP race right now. Don't just look at the numbers. Don't just look at the stats. Just look at the eye test. Look at the Phoenix Suns. Look at the winning streak they're on. Look at the chemistry. Look at the ball movement. That's all a byproduct of Chris Paul. Draymond Green, I got to say it. He might be the best teammate in the world. The best teammate in the world. And quite arguably, maybe the best all-around defender in the world. Jordan Poole. I feel like Jordan Poole is a 25-point-per-game scorer in this league. I'm telling you, if Steph wasn't there right now, Jordan Poole would be averaging 25 a game. His toolbox is like that. And I need all the media people, and I need these franchises that, that cut Gary Payton the second. Everybody who had him on their roster and cut him, you need to apologize to that man. You owe Gary Payton's son an apology. All you teams, I think it was the Houston Rockets. I can't remember all the teams off my head, but apologize to Gary Payton Jr. I went to see LaMelo Ball play last weekend, and I got to say something right here on the Some Do Show. He might be the best point guard in the world right now. Just wait until you see him play in person. Dennis Schroeder. We saw Dennis Schroeder go crazy against the Lakers a couple nights ago in the Boston Garden. And I, I just had an observation about Dennis. Dennis, I feel like he really doesn't play hard every night because he didn't get girls growing up. And now he's rich. He got the money. He got the fame. You know, he's wearing designer outfits every day. He's lazy. Just like a lot of talented guys in the NBA. He's just lazy. Why can't you play like that every night, Dennis Schroeder? Luke Walton. Oh, Luke Walton. The jig is hovering, Luke. The daddy discount is finally running out, Luke Walton. Bill Walton, being your daddy, cannot save you anymore, my guy. And I've been watching the Washington Wizards. Shout out to Kyle Kuzma, my guy. And I must say, Bradley Bill... Is the most underrated basketball player in the world right now. Think about what I'm telling you. Who talks about Bradley Bill on a daily basis? Not too many people. I think he's Ray Allen. I think he's Milwaukee Bucks Ray Allen right now. Just watch the games, man. Don't be a highlight watcher. Does John Wall still play basketball? I just want to know. We miss you, John Wall. You know, I'm from North Carolina. Everybody knows my track record. It's one of the greatest high school players we ever seen in the state of North Carolina. Number one draft pick. Was doing his thing in the, in the league for a lot of years. Made the all-star game. We just want to see John Wall hoop again. And what are the Minnesota Timberwolves? Some nights they look legit to me. 
Some nights they look like an AAU team who just met each other that weekend at Nationals and nobody knows each other and nobody wants to pass the ball. It's fascinating to watch. Pat Beverly, I know you eat Sloppy Joes before the game, bro. I know you drink chocolate Yoo-Hoo in the huddle. I see you in the timeouts. <laughs> Call Anthony Towns, man. You should be averaging 28 and 14 right now in this league, right now. That's why you see guys like Shaq get on TV and they be kind of, you know, kind of critical of guys like Joel Embiid and other big men around the league because I feel like these guys are underachievers. I mean, Carl Anthony Towns, we got to agree. Would you agree he's just as skilled as Anthony Davis, right? So why is he not averaging at least 28 and 14 right now? He got the whole toolbox. Stretch five, he can shoot the three, can post up, mid-range game, can finish with both hands, soft feathery touch. Come on, cat. Step it up. And why do the Brooklyn Nets have Cam Thomas just buried in the G League? Free Cam Thomas. Like Cam Thomas, we all know he a certified bucket. He can really be helping the Brooklyn Nets right now. There's no reason why Cam Thomas should be buried in the G League. I'm not liking that, Brooklyn. And fellas, let me tell you this. If you see Ja Morant liking a, a IG Honey's picture or your girl's picture on Instagram, she's gone forever. Isaiah Stewart. <laughs> Isaiah Stewart, you did all that Booker T Harlem Heat shit last night. You did all the antics. You did all that extra. Just because you got an accidental slap to the face, bro. So I want to welcome you to the Chinese Basketball Association. Because that's where you're about to be shipped to, Isaiah Stewart. The jig is hovering. Welcome to the Some Dude Show. We cuffs the legend. I run shit here. You just live here. Yeah, that's right. You better walk away. Go on, walk away, because I'm going to burn this motherfucker down. King Kong ain't got shit on me. I got a uh, I got a special code that I live by. You know, I always keep it 100 with the ones who have kept it 100 with me. Uh, you know, one of the first major network interviews I ever done was back in 2013, I think it was, on ESPN Radio with this young lady right here. She always shows some dude some love, so I'm here to reciprocate that love. The very first guest on the Some Dude Show. I had to do it like this. This is one of the most decorated writers in the world, y'all. One of the most accomplished black queens in the media, in the social justice landscape. With no further ado, Jamel Hill, welcome to the Some Dude Show. <laughs> this is an honor, a ple- pleasure, a privilege. Whatever superlatives I could come up with, uh, it is good to be with you, some dude. <laughs> oh my God, I, f- I feel I feel very humble by that. I appreciate that. 
Yeah, I mean, um, like during those days where social media was a lot more fun. <laughs> oh, you were yeah. One of my, yeah, you were. You remember those days? You were one of my earliest uh, follows, man. And you, you, as you said, you always kept it a hundred, and you were just funny. And so, um, uh, as much as social media can be such a pain in the ass, the one thing I'm grateful for it is that it exposed me to people like you, who's path I would have never crossed if not for social media. So uh, it's a pleasure to see you now with your expanding platform. And yeah, I just feel like I could be like, I, I knew you win. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I kind of talk about this a lot. I, um, I use the word frequency and I believe certain individuals operate on a different frequency than others sometimes. And I think that's one of the reasons why we kind of connected on a certain frequency, like even though we never actually met in person, but I just want to ask the question because I call it like the I'm going to call it like this, the flourish frequency. Right. It's what we're going to call it from this moment on. So it's like a it's like a wavelength we on. Uh, it could be the jokes. You know, it could be the humor. You know, it could be the shit talk and all that. It's like we on a certain type of time. So the question I want to ask you out the gate is who else in the sports media in the world is on that same frequency with us? Well, you know, it, it's funny because I think um, there is a picture that a lot of people have of certain people in sports media that is not entirely the picture, you know, because I've gotten a chance, especially, you know, being in the business now 20 plus years to really get to know who people are. And so I always think it goes in in the opposite ways, like the people you think the shit or the people you think might be on that frequency really ain't. Ooh. And the people that you don't know are they really are and you were like damn they really down so for me you know and these are people i fuck with that i rock with of course my girl carrie champion yes um and uh uh l duncan um you know malika andrews uh ryan clark my man marcus spears and mark spears like these michael eves like these are people that you know i have known since way before uh, with the exception of, of L and Carrie, because Carrie and I, we became really good friends once uh, she got to ESPN. But a lot of the people I rock with are people that have been sort of day ones, people that I've known since when I was a writer and like nobody really knew my name. And so it's incredible that we're all able to share these platforms. And I know I, I forgot some people. And if you want to go, you know, legendary, of course, there's like Stuart Scott and Robert Roberts and, and people like that. So. Um, so yeah, I mean, I just consider it a, a blessing that I've been able to get to know these folks, uh, Michael Wilbine, like, um, you know, I, I grew up, I hate to say grew up cause I don't want to make the big homie seem like he's super old, but Michael Wilbine probably when I was coming up, he probably had the career I most wanted to emulate. And that was, this is long before the PTI shit even happened yeah. uh, when he was a, yeah, when he was a columnist for the Washington post. And, um, you know, arguably at that point, the most known, you know, black columnist in the game between him and Bill Roden and Brian Burwell, rest in peace. Like these are sort of the OG culture that kind of a uh, Rob Parker um, uh, who kind of uh, really helped me along in this business. So how do you feel about, you know, certain personalities like myself, where I don't really consider myself media. That's the funniest thing behind all this. I don't consider myself media, but so many people have been kind of pushing me towards getting into it a little more. So how do you guys, I mean, when I say you guys and gals that came up where you went like the journalism school or you went to certain institutions to actually learn and develop this craft, how do you feel about the ones that's jumping into this craft that's kind of like, I say, 
It's kind of like street ball. You know what I'm saying? Like you got the street, you got the street ball players. Then you have the kids that grew up and they play private ball or private school ball. It's like it's kind of like I compare it to, you, you know, Jamel, how you see the Instagram comedians stepping into the comedy game in real life. Right. But yeah. I will say I'm not necessarily a fan of that. So I don't think that's kind of the same as this because I just feel like it's a natural skill set. Well, this is what I would say is that, okay, let's just go with your street ball analogy. The The beauty of that is that whenever you had a street ball dude going against somebody who may have come from a more straight path, um, they keep the straight path dudes honest. And so I don't look at somebody like you as a threat to what I do. Yeah. Um, I think it's people like you that keep the mainstream media on their toes. And while sometimes it cannot always um, be positive. I think that at least in this this um, era of sports media journalism that we're in, you are going to be held a lot more accountable by the public than when I was first coming into business because there was no echo chamber chamber there. Like social media did not exist basically my first ten to twelve years in the business. So you could write some shit and it could be. Um, off the mark or, you know, people can note that there was a hypocrisy in the way that you covered people and you would never know because, you know, unless you got somebody in a snail mail or maybe you heard it in a barbershop, if you were a dude or whatever, you wouldn't know. But now if you are wrong about something, if people sense your bullshit, it's going to come out. And so I actually think that's kind of a good thing. And the one thing that, while I love making money in TV, don't get me wrong, like it was great, like the career and the path that I had at ESPN. The one thing that I missed is that I felt too disconnected from the conversation and that I'm in my studio, I'm saying whatever, I'm making my observations. And of course I still talk to people, but it was much different than when I was a reporter on the grind, talking to athletes every day, talking to coaches every day in the locker room all the time and just really getting a pulse and a feel for what was really going on. It informed my commentary. And when you come to the studio, you're not in that world anymore. And like, yeah, it's people that will definitely tell you stuff. You develop different type of relationships, but you feel like your ear is not to the ground as well as it used to. And if you're not careful, what you'll do is find yourself parroting narratives of the power structure as opposed to really talking about the shit that needs to be talked about. So people ask me all the time, do I miss like, being at ESPN and all these things. I don't haven't missed it since I left uh, for a lot of reasons, but mostly what I don't miss is that like, I don't miss all the unnecessary yelling and conversation that happens after games and these kind of things. Like I don't miss, miss making a big deal out of bullshit. Like I don't miss that at all. Like I like the fact that I'm able to watch sports from a, a pure standpoint than I did when I was there. Um, and that every day, I don't have some kind of pressure to manufacture um, some kind of take. And that's not to say that I had some fake opinion. I was always myself and I always kept it as, as real as I certainly could. But I don't miss being in that grind of always having to have something to say. But sometimes you don't know what to say. And sometimes the answer is, I don't know what I don't know. Sometimes the answer is, could be both. Sometimes the answer is, got to hear both sides. But that's not that doesn't generate traction. So oh. What happened? Yeah. So what happens is like you wind up thinking only in extremes. Not nobody's telling you your opinion, but you it changes how your 
digesting the information. And so I don't miss that shit at all. So I'm very happy. <laughs> so welcome very to Death Row. So welcome to Death Row. So now, <laughs> exactly. now you on Death Row Records now, right? Mm-hmm. See, now I can come out. Now I can come out with a, a hot two disc uh, album <laughs> and, be, and, be, and be good, you know. And it, and it, and that's no disrespect to the people that do it every day. In fact, being away from it had made me have even more respect for doing daily television. And it wasn't until I was out of it that I realized it was nuts to do that shit every damn day. But um, yeah, it seems like a. Know, it I, seems like a. It seems like a real job, like a job job. No, it, it's a job. Like, so people out there, um, some of which may be listening right now to our conversation, they have this idea that you just sit around and watch games and that's it. That is not it. It's like, could you imagine, you, you know, you we know what your sweet spot is. And it's like, I mean, you're, you're a pretty knowledgeable sports fan. Like, you're way above average, right? But could you imagine having to have opinions about everything all of the goddamn time. It's, like, you know, it's, just, it's just not even normal. It's like, I yeah, it's not normal. You got to pick your spot. I, I got to pick your wheelhouse and stay there. Correct. And they had you talking about hockey. They had you, they had you asking, they asked you about hockey. Um, you know, we only talked the good thing about when, when Mike and I uh, had his and hers and that's when we moved on to sports center is that we we had a lot of creative control over our show, so we knew what our sweet spots was. Like it was to us, if it was some hockey shit that like crossed over cultural bounds, then we would definitely talk about it. Now, keep in mind that as a reporter before I got to ESPN, like I covered two Stanley Cups, so it's like it's not like I didn't know. You know, matter of fact, in in, in terms of your background uh, backyard, I covered the Carolina Hurricanes when they played the Red Wings in, in the um, Stanley Cup Finals. So, oh. it, yeah, so um, so it wasn't like I'm, you know, you being unfamiliar, but it's certain sports that just don't have the same kind of conversation and energy around them all the time, and hockey is one of them. And so, um, yeah, but it's but it, even it with the minutia of the sports you do like having to talk about the Cowboys for the 88th time in a row. You can just be like, yo, bro, I'm sick of this shit at some point. Yeah. You know, same narrative, same narrative, same narrative. Exactly. So you, you, to me, it was more of the beating a dead horse to death repeatedly over and over again. But you know, you had to pay attention to the audience and a producer told me while I was at ESPN, we play the hits. And he's right. He's not wrong at all because this is what generates the most viewership. This is what get people talking on social media. And yes, the whatever the hell is going on with the Sacramento Sacramento Kings might be a better story. But the reality is nobody cares. So you you kind of have to pivot back to the things that people care about, even if you wind up sometimes digging deep to find things that are worth talking about. That's funny. You know, I'm, I'm laughing to myself because no disrespect to the Sacramento Kings, but nobody really cares about the Sacramento Kings since Chris Webber left and, and Mike Baby. No. <laughs> and Mike, nobody. They don't. I nobody. mean, but I tell you what, though. You know, what, oh, what was, you know, who, was you know who they don't care about? I ain't mean to cut you off. You know who they don't oh, no, care about? Ahead. The Detroit Lions. What's up with y'all? So, first of all, sir, it's not a y'all. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a y'all by proxy. Because, oh. Yeah. Yes, I'm from Detroit, but I've never been a Lions fan because, um, frankly, I value my mental health. Um, but uh, yes. yeah, they were so shitty when I was coming up. I saw no reason to root for them. I actually grew up as a 49ers fan because uh, my mother um, went to uh, Oakland right after high school. And so she 
started to really like the 49ers and Joe Montana. So she kind of introduced me to them and I never let them go, even though she would root for the Lions and the 49ers. And so, no, but all my family members are. My husband's a big Lions fan. And so every Sunday I just look at him like, you really expect it better, hon. I feel so sorry for I you. I can't figure out how they keep having a Thanksgiving Day game. Like, I, I, it got to be some kind of veto, some law. We got to pass a <laughs> law. We got to talk to somebody in the Congress. Like, there's no way the Detroit Lions should be playing on Thanksgiving, man. There's no way. Okay, so, he, so here's the thing, though, uh, So Like, I know it's not popular, maybe nationally, but I'm speaking on this level as a Detroiter, somebody who, as uh, to quote Jay-Z, grew up in the real hood, not the rap hood is that I the game means a lot to the city. Like Detroit is not often in the national spotlight for good things. And I know the fans are like, why do we have to see this shitty ass football every year? And I get it. Um, aside from, you know, some of the Barry Sanders years or even some of Matt Stafford's years, frankly, where where it, it was actually the games were actually good. I understand how the rest of the nation feels about it, but for that city that, you know, is right now, I think they're the only NFL franchise that hasn't been to a modern day Super Bowl. Um, it means a lot. This is their Super Bowl. And so I would hate to see the game taken out of Detroit, but I'm biased. I'm from Detroit. So of course I would feel that way. I was the biggest Barry Sanders fan probably in the world when I was a kid. And I used to actually look forward to the Thanksgiving game because of him and Herman Moore and uh, like you said, yeah. Scott Mitchell days and uh Johnny Yeah, and, Johnny Morton. Yeah. John but, but now it's like, bro, put something else on. So I, I want to ask you, I want to go back to the background. I want to go to the backstory, to the to the roots and the evolution of Jamel Hill. How how did you first get started in the media? And like, what did you do to separate yourself from like other competition? Because I know it was a lot of competition with females trying to get into the media at that time. So how did you separate yourself from the competition? Uh, one thing about me is that I have amazing tunnel vision. And so um, I didn't look at it from a competitive standpoint. I loved writing. You know, I grew up, I was a neighborhood tomboy. Um, I loved playing sports. I loved watching sports. But you I also hooped? loved, I, I did not hoop. I ba- You know, baseball was actually my, my first love. Oh. <laughs> so who yes, your favorite played- baseball player? You was a shortstop? I could tell you probably was a yeah, I was. See? I was a shortstop. Some dude. Some dude I know. <laughs> I tell y'all all the time, I'm the oracle, man. I don't know how I be knowing stuff. So your favorite player, let me guess. So what year was you born? Don't, what year was you born? I was born 1975. I'm old. <laughs> you are a cougar. So we... <laughs> Yo, what's going on? So we're going to get to that, too. We're going to talk about that, too. So so you was probably a... What shortstop was the man back then? Who was your childhood well, idol? okay. All right, so you got to take it again to Detroit, right? So when I was uh, nine, the Tigers won their uh, their second World Series. Okay, so that's nineteen eighty four. So of course, Alan Trammell. Yes, um, I did. I did love Lou Whitaker too, because obviously being black, playing in the infield. I had but, that, I had their baseball cards. I'm showing my age too. Th- th- see, look at that. But yeah, man, I, I love baseball. Like that was my that was my shit right there, and so. Um, you know, I grew up watching this week in baseball and all the Saturday games and everything. And so gradually, of course, it started drifting into other sports where I started watching college basketball and college football and the NFL. But baseball was my entry point entry point into sports. And the thing is, you know, because I am old, uh uh also Ozzy Smith, I fucking loved Ozzy Smith. That was like my Yeah. Dude, so. I, yeah, he was my guy too. 
Him and Sean yes. Dustin. I wanted to be Sean, Sean Dustin. Dustin. Yes, yes. He, he had an arm. I wanted to be Sean Dustin. Like I, when I play little league baseball, a lot of people don't know this. So you're gonna get these type of stories on the Some Do Show. When I played baseball as a kid, like I was an all star every year up until like 13. They wanted me to go to all these different tournaments and camps. I just didn't have interest in the sport anymore. But I, people tell you, my family will tell you, I probably could have went real far in baseball because I watched baseball. Ron Gant on the Braves, David Justice. Like, I was a baseball fanatic, but now I couldn't tell you any players, any of them. Well, you know, back then, during that time you mentioned, and certainly when I was growing up, the, the percentage of African-American players in the league was probably like triple. I mean, just on the Tigers alone, on that World Series team, you had Lou Whitaker, Chet Lennon, Larry Herndon, um, Shit, I'm sure I'm forgetting somebody else, but the reality is like you had several black baseball players on the team. With the and Afros. So, with the Afros. With the Afros, like who were for real black, like blackity black. Like they try to be, you know what I'm saying? And so uh, that's doing that Ron Washington uh, <laughs> phase. And so, um, yeah, it was different. I mean, you know, Sean Dunstan uh, is one. And guy, who am I thinking of? The other cubby, the one with the Jerry girl. Andre the, Dawson. Andre Dawson, right? Yeah, yeah he exactly. had the Soul Glow package, and uh, he, it was one more break, uh, one more cub that had the Soul Glow Soul Glow package. Uh, was it, it was Andre well, Dawson. I, I, uh, Sammy Sosa came through with the Soul Glow. Yeah, yeah, he he came through with the Soul Glow as well. But the whole point was like the black players at that time were um, a lot more visible in the game. I mean, yeah. you had Dave Stewart and like so many um, great, amazing play, oil can boy, like so many great players, and so. Now it's just not that way, and I do think that um, because, like you mentioned, how you lost interest, you know, in the game. And I know you said uh, you commented a lot on watching Colin Kaepernick black and white. Oh and yes, you see, and yeah, you see it in 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 his um, uh, limited series about how you see how he lost his love for the game because how you feel about point, it? How you feel about it? About about the series? Um, I, I thought the series was excellent. I thought it was really well done, and. Um, I went to the premiere of Colin in Black and White, the Hollywood premiere here in L.A. And uh, first question I asked Colin when I saw him was, um, what did your parents think about this? Because <laughs> I've met his parents before. And he said that they hadn't seen it at that point. So I'd be really curious as to how they felt about how they're portrayed. They were well-meaning, uh, but clueless, obviously. Yeah, they was and totally so, oblivious to the, to the urban black culture. And I didn't know that part of his story because I'm biracial. I grew up with a white mother and I got a lot of stories that I'm going to tell on my podcast. And I saw that show and I was really fascinated by it. And my takeaway from it, and it's not a negative thing at all, Jamel, but my take from it, my takeaway from watching it he kind of reminds me of some people in my actual family where mm. they're just now discovering more of their blackness as they got older. Once they got like outside of like uh, college life and, and into the actual world. So I, I kind of see that on Colin more than somebody that was kind of raised like I was. Like I know me and Colin didn't, were, weren't raised the same just by watching that. Right. You know what I'm saying? But it, that made it fascinating because I didn't really know that about him. I just automatically assumed that sometimes all biracial boys or girls are kind of raised similar, you know, black dad, you know, white mom or vice versa. But I was really, per, you know, perplexed at the same time because I was like, damn, these people really don't even know <laughs> what a do-rag is. <laughs> well, or clearly they didn't know about braids. Um, so, uh, you know, but the thing was, though, I, I think he clearly was gravitating toward black culture. Yes, and he was. To understand, he was uh, trying to understand that part of himself and his parents were not 
frankly, well-versed enough or culturally sensitive enough to realize that they are raising a black son. And when you're raising a black son in America, that's a completely different, it's a completely different set of rules. It's a completely different set of microaggressions that they're going to face. And so they were not able per the series to provide the level of support for him that they should have. And so I think what we have seen him on is a journey of self-discovery. I think it started before the kneeling for sure. And, but um, I, I think now um, it's 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 first nature. I'll say like like he is. Uh, I don't. I never got the impression from him, even when he was in college, because I, I watched him in college. I never got the impression from him that he was somebody that was in any way trying to escape his identity. Not at all. No. And so um, so yeah. So I, I thought the series was really great, really instructional, and. Um, you know, just just well done. It was funny because I saw your post about some of the sports scenes. <laughs> and God bless that young actor. Um, oh my God! Had, yeah, I know. <laughs> God bless him. Like he, I, I had a pleasure. He was throwing pleasure the football, right? So it was like the first episode. I, I thought. I think so. So I was watching the first episode, and I was like, "Yo, this kid never played football before." So he I was didn't. like, yeah, he, I, yeah, I, I, yeah, I noticed that immediately. So I was like, yo, this is, it started to be funnier and funnier. And then I started thinking about, uh, remember when Jay-Z, was it Jay-Z did threw the ball at the Jets game? Yeah. I think it was Jay-Z. Wait, wait, was that him? I think you might be right. So I was like, yo, this, it was amazing to me how he played that role as a three, what, three sport athlete. Yeah, and uh, I was lucky enough to moderate a panel with him and Avery DuVernay and Michael Starberry, who was the, um, uh, uh, creator and I think the he's um, special. executive producer. He's special. Yeah, he, he's special. He nailed his mannerisms. And the thing was, the challenging part for him is that Colin's a grown man. So if he didn't have a reference point of being able to look at young Colin, he couldn't because Colin is grown, right? And so um, he was able to still pick up on enough mannerisms, still understand enough of uh, of who he was psychologically that he just, I mean, he was so very good. So I, I hope everybody sees it because it, re- it really was a, a dynamic and wonderful series. But I don't want to, I don't want to um, lose my train of thought on the question you originally asked about how I got into sports. So neighborhood tomboy loved um, watching sports, loved playing sports. Um, also, you know, love writing, love reading. And so this was at a time where if you wanted to follow the sports that you love, that you had to read the newspaper. So I, that's what got me into reading newspapers was reading the sports section and took a high school journalism class. And I was hooked after that. I knew from my like 10th grade that I wanted to be a sports writer in particular. I didn't know personally any sports writers. Um, that was, especially with the way I grew up, that was not something that was necessarily something I saw but it's just something I just felt like I could do. So I was very lucky because early on I identified what I wanted to do. And that's all I've ever chased. Uh, the TV part of this was very surprising because I never wanted to be on television. When I came to ESPN in 2006, they hired me as a writer for ESPN.com as a columnist. They did not hire me to be on television. That was something that just evolved. And I don't mind saying the reason that I initially got into television was because of the money. That was why. Yes. Always the money. Always the bag. That's an amazing black success story we are listening to right now on the Some Dude Show with Jamel Hill. Like you said, I had extreme tunnel vision. 
Yeah, so I didn't worry about who else was was in this. And I'm not one of those, there can only be one type of people anyway. That's just not my energy. And um, I think that what was really key for me was that I fell in love with writing. And my dream job was never ESPN. It's like, that they weren't even on my vision board. Like, seriously, I mean, I watched them and consumed them as a sports fan, as somebody in the sports industry but my dream job was actually to work for sports illustrated like i wanted to be somebody writing these twenty thousand word articles and you know oh. spending doing yeah spending and doing spending this time with athletes and doing these deep in-depth profiles of them because you know i started subscribing to sports illustrated when i was in high school um or I should say, I didn't really subscribe. I no, sort of like kind no. of came up, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. It's, I, I know what you're about to say. I was that same you know kid on the school bus, and I used to walk by the library. And you know how you be in the grocery store and you sneak yep, up. You there sn- it is. Let me, let me get that grape right there. Let me get that sports illustrated. <laughs> and I'll be exactly. on the, I would be on the school bus riding home. I'm talking. About I was a young, young buck reading the sports illustrated back in like probably this like '85, '86, and I'm reading about the Celtics and Bird and Magic. And that's why you develop that love for this shit. And a lot of people don't, don't realize that, like, damn, bro, you really, I love this shit because it's always been going inside my head since a kid was that information. So I want to ask you, what is your all-time favorite interview that you've done? You know, my, my all-time favorite interview is never with people of note. It's never with somebody that people would, <laughs> you know, automatically, like, it's not with, like, Michael Jordan or something like that. Like I've interviewed Jordan before, but it's like not with somebody like that. Um, the stories that I most, in, cause I go by story, I guess more so than interview. Um, the stories uh, that tend to resonate with me are about regular people doing extraordinary things. So I remember when I was in, when I lived in North Carolina in your home state, uh, when I lived in Raleigh and was working for the North, uh, for the uh, News and Observer. And uh, I did a story about the Citadel's first female athlete. Uh, her name was Mandy Garcia. She ran cross country. And I was able to go to the Citadel. And this is at a time where admitting women into the Citadel was pretty new. They were off of the controversy of Shannon Faulkner, who was the first woman technically admitted into the, to the Citadel. And now they were on to their first female athlete, even though they didn't. I mean, they might have had like seven or eight women there total, maybe. And I might be overstating it. But anyway. I was just drawn to the fact that here's this army brat lives in Fayetteville, which it, uh, people in North Carolina know they call Vietnam. Um, yes. and, <laughs> and so she, uh, she was just really extraordinary, like so extraordinary. Like she didn't even realize how extraordinary that she was. I remember interviewing Marion Jones when I was there in Raleigh, uh, you know, just fresh off a of turning pro and everybody told her it was a mistake because she had just won a national championship with North Carolina with the women's team. And everybody said it was a complete mistake for her to turn pro. And she did. And this was before she competed in her first Olympics. And so those are the types of things you tend to remember. Um, people that you meet at a point in their career where they don't even know what they're about to do. And, um, yeah, so, like, when I think about, like, favorite interviews, that's what I think about. Of course, I've had very funny and um, memorable interviews. Maybe my most memorable interview was the one I did for Outside the Lines at ESPN uh, with the late Charles Rogers, who was, you know, former number two pick. I mean, this is about to be what would have been considered being viral then, if you will. And it was. People were just like, did he say he was just smoking weed every day watching Sports Center? Yeah, he, he really did. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, that and uh, I guess to bring it more to the current, I think I mean I was the first reporter 
that Janae Rice sat down with um, going through that process and talking about, you know, what happened with her and um, doing a sit down with, with Ray, of course. And so, you know, there's these different points in your career that you, you realize, but mostly for me, it's, it's always been about the story and, and the work and, and telling um, perspectives that sometimes get hushed or are unpopular or, um, you know, forces us to really think. So what's your dream interview that you haven't done yet that you that you want to that you want to see yourself accomplish? Oprah, probably. Oh, <laughs> like, I, I would say it's probably uh, Oprah or, um, you know, Serena Williams, actually. Um, and oh, my God, I, you I know yeah. I had this on my list for you, but yo, we you, can get into it now because I know how you feel about it. But Serena, because. I think for as much as we know, there's like so much we don't know. And I think when you're a journalist, interviewing super famous people presents a very harrowing challenge in that these are people who have been written about, talked about, discussed, dissected for years. And it is your job to try to unearth something about them that people don't know or should show something that people don't, you know, quite understand or <laughs> Speaking of that, yeah, I got a confession to make right here on the Some Do Show with Jamel Hill. I cried the entire time watching King Richard the other night. I'm talking about like I, I was doing like this right here. Right, I'm watching it right, and like every I'm talking about the first scene, the first couple scenes. I'm in there like, <laughs> dang man, like what is wrong with me, bro? Like what? <laughs> like, I, like I'm I'm crying and I'm laughing. Like what is wrong with me? I got two daughters, so I guess that's a part of the, of I guess my yeah. my connection <laughs> to the movie. But it's like, yo, bro, this. I'm talking about first five minutes. So what was your what was your opinion on King Richard with Serena and Venus and Richard Williams? Well, listen, um, the Williams sisters, uh, I only call it one of the greatest. And that's only because I don't want to be a prisoner of hyperbole. But maybe I should say, fuck all that. But I think they might be the greatest American sports story ever. Like they really might be. And um, when you think about Richard Williams in particular, vilified. Uh, for a long time, uh, considered to be eccentric, brash, boisterous. Uh, you notice they have a problem with black men who don't quote unquote stay in their lane. A fucking and genius. I'm going to say it. He a fucking he genius. He's a genius. He's a genius. LeVar Ball, I mean, he, just, he, he walked so LeVar could fly. That's why I tell people. Exactly. He did. He did. And, you know, Richard Williams, especially because uh, he understood the tennis culture better than anybody. And it could be corrosive. It could damage your children's psyche. And he wanted to protect his girls from that. And I think it's a, it speaks volumes to not just his genius, but to the respect he is owed, the fact that they were in a position to executive produce a movie and they chose to tell it from their father's point of view. And that is very meaningful. But what shouldn't be lost in this is that I know Will Smith, deservedly so, gets the major headline, but they also put their mother's point of view in there. And I think yes. that was I loved it. just as important. I loved it. Like they put their parents, they they gave them the opportunity for their kind of stories to be to be heard. But Richard Williams, man, he was like talking cash shit all the time. And I swear, because I remember when he told the media that Serena was going to be better than Venus. And everybody laughed. Yeah, they, they laughed. Like, Ain't they laughed no way. Out. 
no way. They thought he was crazy. And he was like, nah, she's going to be better than Venus. And then for a father to say that, especially, you know, you got two girls and you never know how that's going to play at home. But the one thing I've appreciated about these two sisters, and I've had the um, honor of moderating a panel with, with, with both of them, is that the love that they have for each other, you just can't explain it. Like a, a lot of sibling relationships would not have survived the kind of success that they had. Right? Yes, that's a you good know, point. They would not have survived it. The you jealousy, know, the envy, yeah, it's like, exactly. it's natural. Yeah. Natural emotion. But but I will say this, though. Um, I mean, they're, they're both historic champions. But you did sense that Serena, like her competitive, her level of competitiveness is right up there with like Kobe and Jordan. Yes. Like it's ridiculous. 100%. You know? Yeah. So I understand why you would have that feeling as a black father. And as we know, uh, black fathers often don't get the opportunity in film to be presented and represented this way. And so I under this this is a, a film that um, strikes us in different chords. And so to know that their father who self who was self-taught with tennis. This is like he taught himself tennis through videotapes. <laughs> like this is just you know ridiculous. The, you know the illest shit he said in the movie when he was like, Me and my wife athletes. When he, he was talking to one of the tennis coaches yeah. or whatever, like, how do you know this stuff? Like, man, how do you know? He's like, Me and my wife both athletes. Basically telling you, like, we got the genetics and I'm gonna figure the rest out. Yeah, and you know what? Um I do think that it is a very almost instructional thing for parents, black parents. I'm going to just be honest, like for black parents in particular, because, you know, the the thing of it is that sometimes um, driving your kids toward ambition can be misconstrued and seen as like a bad thing. And the one thing that was very clear about Richard Williams and how he set them up for success is that he was not going to let them be mediocre. And he was going to only challenge them to be great and sometimes i think we have a culture that's um not quite like that i mean there's a there's a fine line there's a blurred line uh between obviously you know being the reason your kids don't make it versus the reason that they do make it but i think there's just something to be said for uh being the kind of parent that instills a fearlessness in your children um, and holds them accountable. Like, you know, kids pick up and put down shit every day, but he made sure that he held them accountable and they really loved the sport. And so, um, cause sometimes, you know, part of it is generational time, trauma and all other sorts of things is that parents let their own fears, they project them on their children. Yes. And so sometimes that hinders their greatness. And, and he didn't, he almost did it like to some, only, only in the sense that I understood he was, he was very concerned about them turning pro. And, uh, and and turning pro too early for sure, but um, generally speaking, I, I think a lot of parents can learn from that. It's like you can't project your own fears on your children. I think it was a great family movie, even if you have no interest in sports or tennis or any of that. Like it was, I agree, it was a great family movie for me and my family because I was like, bro, I can't stop crying. My daughter's sitting here, they're laughing at me, right? Like y'all laughing at me. <laughs> I'm crying. Are you really? Like my kids are petty, so it's like, yo, dad's crying over there. Like, where are y'all? Where y'all laughing? I'm crying because of y'all. Like, like, you know, I'm watching a movie, thinking about y'all, and y'all laughing at me. But it's funny because, like, I, I, I watched it. I got to go back and watch it 
Um, it's another movie I want you to check out. You're going to laugh, but I, I want you to check out uh, <laughs> Clifford the Big Red Dog. You got to watch that. So, so listen, it's a whole thing that, I mean, this is not an animated movie. It's like, you know, because the dog itself is like somewhat animated uh, from my understanding. <laughs> yeah. But I, just, I generally avoid kids' movies. I do. And why? Why? Reason, why is that? I mean, since we, since we, you know, getting sensitive here on, on, on the Some Dude podcast is that, um, I blame my mother because she scarred me when I was uh, maybe six, seven years old. She took me to see Bambi in the theater. If y'all have seen Bambi, I mean, fuck a spoiler alert because like this movie been out for literally like yeah, it's, 40 oh, years. Yeah, it's been out for a long time. Yo, they gunned down Bambi's mama <laughs> and I've never recovered. I've never man. recovered. Like, ever. <laughs> I never want to see some shit like that again on screen. Like, when they shot Bambi's mama. They gunned down Bambi. Dog, I was done. I was like, oh, no. I cried. Like, I had lost a family member. And after that, I was like, I tell you what's not going to happen. Y'all ain't going to have me up in these kids' movies feeling all soft. Like, I'm just not, I'm, the emotional trauma from that movie scarred me for life. Oh, so it, like, it got you early. So did you see Toy Story 2 then? I've never seen any of the Toy Story. Yo, that's the one. That is the see? one. See? If you watch that movie, you got to watch it with your husband or, or family member. I'm telling you, I went to the theater and saw that. And that was, that kind of sparked, uh, what's the other movie that had me kind of crying, uh, Up, I think it was, with the old yeah, man. Yeah, that's what I, yeah. Yo, it's like, oh, I got another one. I got, I'm, I'm going to give you two homework assignments. Okay. So you're going to watch, uh, watch, um, what's the one we just said? Um, you said Clifford, right? No, yeah, watch Clifford and watch. Toy Story 2. Oh, Toy, Toy Story, Story 2, 2 and uh-huh. watch Coco. Plus, why are you trying to have me in a? Because why are you trying to have me in a in a, in a glass case of emotion? Like yo, I don't really. Coco want to is crazy, and I went to Cancun and saw where they. It's like a uh, what they call it, like a graveyard. That is, they they based the movie off this graveyard in in Mexico in Cancun. It's a crazy story. You you got to check it out. I'm telling you, like you got to check that out. Toy Story, right. Toy Story Two was like so crazy. Like we was in a the theater looking at each other, like. Yo, are we tripping? Like, are these toys about to die? Like the toys. <laughs> the toys. Now, can, now, can I can I see Toy Story two without seeing Toy Story one? Or yes, you I, can. Or should I just okay? I was like, because I'm okay with well, doing the whole trilogy. Well, I would like, say I don't, I don't mind. You might want to watch the first one just to get a storyline, a backstory of the characters. Uh-huh. So, matter of fact, you might not want to do that because you're gonna get attached to the characters, right? You're gonna get attached. <laughs> Buzz Lightyear, Andy, you're gonna get attached to the characters, and then when part two, you're gonna be like, it's gonna be a scene in part two where you're gonna look at your husband like, yo, <laughs> yo, is this really about to happen? It's crazy. So, yeah, I mean, for some for some reason, when it comes to like animated movies, or kids movies, because they always do some fuck shit that make me want to cry. Like, it just. Uh, but yeah, I can I can take it with adult movies, you know. Hell, I was tearing up at the end of Gladiator. Like, I mean, yeah, Gladiator. Like, okay. Gladiator is an all timer. Three hundred is on that list. I like three hundred. So give me give me your hidden talent. Like everybody has a hidden talent. <laughs> what is your hidden talent, Jamel Hill? That no, that not too many people know about. I can bowl my ass off. Oh. Anybody want that work on the lane? <laughs> I got you. So you got the spin. You got the spin. You lefty. Uh, no, I'm a righty, and I've had my own balling shoes forever. I've been bowling since I was eight years old. I bowled in leagues, both as a kid, a teenager, and an adult. 
I will give you the work. You better than Chris Paul? Chris Paul is kind of good. I ain't gonna <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, Chris like, Paul, Paul good. good. But I feel like I, I can't. We can set it up. That's a that's one phone call. We can set it up. We can set but, that up. Nope. I gotta uh, I gotta give a nod to my Detroit brother J- Jerome Bettis because Jerome Bettis is serious. He, like, got, he got a lot of power. He, he got a lot of power. Dude, he he bowled three hundreds like nothing. Like he ate up yards back in the day. Like three three hundred. Oh yeah, he's bowled perfect games. Like Jerome Bettis is that deal. Damn, I could never bowl good. Like I, I hate to admit that on the Some Dude Show. Like I could never skate. That's one of the things I can't do. I can't skate, man. I can't roll a skate. You know, you, you know why? This is my theory. Is like there's a distinct difference in hidden talents between people who grew up in cold weather cities versus people who do not. Good did point. Not. Good the, point. The truth. The truth is, in Michigan, everybody bowls. Everybody bowls and skates because we have to have indoor activities. Because it was cold as fuck for like six, seven months. So, you know, you out there in North Carolina experiencing um, not, you know, tremendous snowfall, experiencing like, you know, a, a good fall. Or you actually have a spring. Yeah. You know, we that shit wasn't like that for us. So we had to come up with other activities. So that's why, like, you'll never be able to fuck with somebody from the Midwest when it comes to skating or bowling. So Thanksgiving is a few days away. And you know, we always joke on Twitter for years about, you know, the bootleg sodas. <laughs> you, <Dr. Know>, Thunder. <laughs> you know, Mountain Thunder, you know, Dr. Perky. Shout out to Dr. Dr. Perky. Dr. Perky, that's what it was. Yeah, so we've been we've been doing that for a lot of years. So I, I, that's why I really wanted to have you on because this Thanksgiving is around the corner. We're going to see some ugly ass. We, you know, we're going to see some prison platters on the timeline oh, in the man. next couple of days. So I want to ask you, Jamel. What are you cooking for Thanksgiving? So, um, I am doing uh, mac and cheese dressing and greens. So, um, yeah, like it's, you know, this is uh, sort of one of those rites of passages that happens in families. It's like my mother did those things. Um, But now I've graduated. And so my mother's here. She just came into town a few days ago. um, uh, Me and my husband live in L.A. And, yeah, like. Tonight we we gonna make the cornbread for the for the dressing, and um, you know we'll start our cooking session tomorrow. And so yeah, I've graduated to the point where you, yes, I can make the family mac and cheese and the family dressing and the green. That's a big deal. Like that graduation, that's a big deal in the black family. Like everybody can't cook the mac and cheese, everybody can't cook the yams, everybody can't cook the peach cobbler. So what foods are not allowed in the Jamel Hill household? Thursday. You can keep that pumpkin that pumpkin pie shit away. Um, <laughs> why? Like, why? Never, why? What's the hate? Like, what's the hate in the God, black community? It's good. It's, it's not good. I love pumpkin. I got to admit it on my own show. I love pumpkin That's everything. Dog. Pumpkin donuts. You don't, love it better, you don't love it better than sweet potato, though. You can't. Sweet potato pie is overrated in the grand scheme. You're a communist. <laughs> You're a communist. No, I'm joking because I just got a. This is a true story. It's this lady. It's this lady named Constance. It's in, like a family friend of ours. This uh-huh. lady, I'm telling you, when I get to a certain level, I'm putting this lady pies in the grocery store because Patty Pie, <laughs> Patty's Pie, I love Patty Pie, but it's, it's not anywhere like this. So what foods are not allowed? Like you letting chitlins come in, the Jamel Hill house? Nah, man. Like my grandma used to make them and... um you know, that's that's the that's probably one of the few, if not the only soul food like I could never do is that I just because once you've been in the house when somebody had to clean the chitlins, like you never forget that smell. 
And so never, um, never, never like that shit is just destructive. And look, God bless people who can eat them, but I, I'm just not there yet in my blackness. I'm just not there yet. So, um, so no, nah, like not nah, no on the chitlins. And um, I'd probably say pecan. I'm not a big uh, pecan pie or pecan, whatever. I'm not a big. I'm not a big fan of pecan pie at all. So like, we we say pecan down here in the south. So okay. I got I got the the ultimate question, the ultimate Thanksgiving question. This going this going to decide whether you're a terrorist or not. Right here. <laughs> okay. So when you have your Thanksgiving meal and you go, everybody making their plate. You know, you got your yams, you got your mac and cheese, you got all the turkey, you got all the dressing, you got everything on your plate. Mm-hmm. Do you like for your food to touch? Okay. So the answer, and this is really a very Thanksgiving specific question because. Generally, I don't, but Thanksgiving, if you don't get that combo of the canned cranberry, not real cranberry, fuck real cranberry, right? You got to get the canned shit with the little dents in it, like, otherwise it ain't real. So if you don't have some dressing, little canned cranberry, mac and cheese combo, shit ain't hitting. It ain't hitting. It's got to, you got to have, like, the little combo, or if you don't have the mac and cheese that kind of hit with the green like <laughs> you have it's different combos that you have to do on the plate that work I am let's so, be honest look, i'm so different we all got paper plate what you don't even thanksgiving you don't like it to touch yo i had the plates yo i have the plates with the with the dividers like the paper plates no. <laughs> the dividers Dog. Like, yo my mac and cheese is on revis island over here by itself and my yams I'm Homeland security man we got to take the country back. I, that's my like white you. side. I think it's my white side. I, I de- I'm dead serious. That's my Hassan. You got the dividers, dog? Hassan white side. That's what I'm going to start calling it. That's my Hassan white side. I'm telling you, like, I cannot. It's certain perks about me. It's, I mean, not perks, but quirks. It's certain quirky things about me. I'm like, yo, that's that's my that's my mom and them. That's my mom's side of the family. I love them to death, but it's like certain tendencies. And I, I'm trying. I'm trying to get better at it. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> but if that corn juice, if that corn juice touch like my mac and cheese, I got to throw the whole plate away. What? I can't do it. I can't do it, Jamel. Yeah, it's. It, but generally speaking, I'm on your side of things. Like, If you ask me this about just a regular dinner, the answer would be no. But it's something about that Thanksgiving plate. Like when... With that stuffing, with the cranberry, with the mac and cheese, it's just like, oh. So let me ask you. Bite is, you set it off. Do you have a certain family member? You ain't got to say his name, he or she. But <laughs> oh, do you goodness. have a certain family member in the Jamel Hill family tree? Did they come over for Thanksgiving? You know, they might bring some paper plates, some napkins, plastic forks, plastic silverware. But they always leave with a colossal to-go plate. But they hardly ever bring anything. They, they might bring the bootleg sodas, but it never it, it never quite it never quite equates to what they take home. So do you have those people that we call down south freeloaders? Do you have some freeloaders in the Jamel Hill household? So this is why I think it's important that if you're somebody right now who's who's listening or even yourself, Cuffs, if you if you have a, a matriarch in your family, grandma. Uh, especially is that this is why these memories are so important. So Thanksgiving to me now, um, it's become my favorite holiday. It used to be Christmas because you're a kid, you want the gifts. That's what it is. But it's become my favorite 
holiday because I'm very sentimental about it because I think about my grandmother had the meeting spot where everybody would come. And so that's when those family members, you know, and my grandma, her petty ass, God rest her soul, she's so funny because she would make note of the people who did that. She'd be like, mm, such and such ain't yeah. great, but they sure take him. Yep. And she said, you know, like she would know, right? I don't run into that as much anymore because Thanksgiving, uh, you know, has not, I haven't had a big family gathering in a while. We're all scattered now. So whatever. So yeah, I mean, listen, I had the relatives that brought all the Tupperware or took all the food, even if they didn't bring Tupperware, they would certainly find their Put it share back. of aluminum foil. Put it back. Exactly. Right. It's like, so I had those family members, um, certainly had the family members that, you know, it would be a scrap over Monopoly or Spades. Had the family members like it's just what it is, and uh, or some kind of debate about something like inane or whatever because that's got to happen at Thanksgiving. And as loud and as rambunctious and as ridiculous and sometimes drunk as my family was, I miss those times and I wish I appreciated them more. But you know, you're too under young to understand. You know, my grandmother used to always say, "Youth is wasted on the young," in part because as it's happening, you don't have the appreciation for it. You should so. My Thanksgivings uh, haven't been as rambunctious as they have been in uh, when I was growing up, but certainly I've experienced all. <laughs> you can have all of that. you can have all the you can have all the pumpkin pie you want, huh? You can take that home with you. Take the whole pie with you. Just take it. Yeah. I, oh yeah, they can always take the shit that nobody wants. Like, that's just what it is. Like you know, you can do that. So we're gonna we're gonna finish up with this game, right? So it's called mm-hmm. the hot seat with some dude. So I'm just gonna ask you. I'm no, I'm not gonna ask you. I'm just gonna name two things, right? It could be person, okay. person, place, or thing. Okay. And you tell me who you would take first in that draft between those two those two things, right? Okay. So we got Magic Johnson or Isaiah Thomas. I hate you so much. <laughs> I knew it. I knew it was gonna be the tough. I hate you so much. Uh, oh my god! I mean, I I'm gonna just say it, Isaiah. I think I think. Yeah, that's. I, I think I. I don't know. Magic was my dad's favorite player, but I feel like Isaiah. Is, Isaiah one of the most. He's still. I feel like one of the most underrated stars ever. Yeah, I mean, and it's hard because obviously, you know, Magic went to Michigan State, I went to Michigan State, and he was, Magic is the one who made me love basketball, you know what I'm saying? But it was shortly after he came into the league, I think the Pistons drafted Zeke in 81. And so then it was like Zeke and like what he meant to Detroit and bringing us to championships, you know, the dude that beat Jordan and Bird and Mm. Magic Johnson, like, like it's just, it's it's the scrappiness, even the lack of respect, it's like, his identity is just fused in the city of Detroit, even though he's a native of Chicago. So I have an idea, Jamil. Yeah, so I'm talking about that's that's what I do. I'm some dude. I have an idea right now while I'm talking to you. We, you saw mm-hmm. how you know back in the day where Kobe and Shaq did their sit down and they you know had a little sit down interview where they sat there and hashed out certain things and they joked and laughed and they cried and had serious moments. And on my my last episode, I I was talking about the whole Young Dolph thing, and then I was mm-hmm. ta- I was talking about you know Drake and Kanye you know coming together and squashing that beef and Jay Prince putting that together. So you might be, I think you might be the perfect person to do this right here because a lot of people gonna hear this, a lot of important people gonna hear this. 
if you could be more of the moderator in that interview, because we got to see Michael Jordan. I know we got to see Michael and Scotty. I talked about that one. But we got to see an interview between Michael Jordan and Isaiah Thomas. Like, they got to have a sit down while they both alive. Like, I, it's got to happen. So, um. Cause it's I something there. It's is, something there. Yeah, but you know what? Here's the crazy part about that is that I think Pistons fans, especially those from my generation, they actually enjoy the fact that there's still beef be only because, you know, you have to understand the mindset of people from Detroit is that we very much feel like fuck the Bulls, fuck the Bulls, fuck Michael Jordan, you know, from a, from a, a rival standpoint. Um, but also the forgotten, the forgotten dynasty, if you will, you know what I'm saying? And yeah. it's like, even, even with the, the Pistons that won in 2014 against Kobe and Shaq, like when you look at their, how they dominated the Eastern Conference during that time, it still feels very forgotten. And so, um, you know, I don't think any of us really personally care if they're not friends or if they <laughs> like if they're still beef. But you know, I mean, I, I know this. It yeah, would get real it. spicy if those two. If those two. Oh, should, I, I feel like they would scrap right now. Like I just, I just feel like like they would, they would probably scrap right now. For us, the more important reconciliation already sort of happened. I, I still feel like there's more that will come. Most important reconciliation for us that needed to happen wasn't Isaiah and Jordan, or isn't it that? It was Jalen and Chris. Oh, yes. That was the most, oh, I, I had a, that was the most important I was part. crying. I had thug tears coming down. I was like, yo, I wore black socks because of y'all. I wore yeah. black Nike socks in high school when I played ball because of the Fab Five. And I had them on my list right here on the hot seat. With some dude, I had that on my list, but I said I didn't want to put you in the torture chamber because I, <laughs> I knew I came out the gate with Magic or Isaiah. But since we talking about it, I'm gonna go ahead and say the Michigan Fab Five uh-huh. or the Michigan State Flintstones with Mateen Cleaves. Huh. So, uh, you know what? Uh, I know people accuse me of being biased. I'm gonna go with the Flintstones only because because um, they won. I, I, yeah. But no, I, I mean, even though when uh, Jalen and I, we we would when I worked there, we would go back and forth because he would remind me of when I was a student there and Jalen was 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 there. Uh, he they took a him, I think him and Juwan, but I feel like maybe it was just him. He they took a fake shit on the Spartaness in the middle, <laughs> like oh. it was, like you know, you know how Randy Moss did the fake moon or he did the moon did things to the Green Bay Pants. Uh, Jalen did the same shit at Michigan State. I was like, you disrespectful as fuck, but. Um, but I, you know, as a, a fan, I understood. So here, the reason I picked the Flintstones, not because they won, is because that literally changed the course of Michigan State basketball history forever. You know, because after that, then, you know, Michigan was playing for second in the state of Michigan. Like, we, like, this may not, uh, you know, this is what we hope will happen with football, right? But, like, Mateen deciding to go to Michigan State over Michigan literally changed Michigan State basketball forever. They became a brand. You see the Final Fours that happened. And now, like, when Michigan State basketball is not a success, it's, like, shocking, right? And Michigan, have they have a good team this year. Obviously, they had a good team last year. But, like, we're the team. We're the franchise sort of team in the state. It's kind of like, 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 like when Duke went in the hood and finally started getting some uh, some hood players and hood kids to come to Duke. It kind of changed their whole, they whole, like, uh, image to the world. It's kind of similar. Yeah, I mean, I would never disrespect or deny what 
Michigan basketball meant to the culture. You know what I'm saying? It was like much different to the culture. I mean, I was, uh, uh, you know, a, a dirty little secret. I was a, I, when I went to Michigan State, I went to Michigan State because they had a, a great journalism program. Um, one that was better than Michigan's. I didn't go there because I was a sports fan of Michigan State. I was actually a Michigan fan because of the Fab Five and because growing up in Detroit, like Detroit to Ann Arbor is 35 minutes. Like they're they're right there. Michigan State is an hour and a half. So most people, a lot of people at the time in, in Detroit were big fans, big Michigan fans. So, you know, I say all that to say is like I would never deny their cultural influence, but for what Mateen Cleves did for the Michigan State's basketball program, it changed the course of it forever, forever. So it's like, it's hard to deny what that meant for um, my alma mater. I got another one for you. Hot seat with some dude. It's going to get spicier. I'm telling you, we only on number one. It's going to get spicier. Outcast or Wu-Tang Clan? Uh, Outcast. That's actually not that hard. See, you know what? If you wanted to make me sweat, you would have said Outcast to the roots. <laughs> okay. Oh. Uh, yeah, that, that would make me sweat because... The Roots are like my family. Um, I know Black Thought, No Quest, um, you know, Captain Kirk, all those guys, like, they have become like family to me. And so that would be much harder. But Outcast, between Outcast and Bootang, for me, Outcast, man, I still remember the first time that, um, you know, I heard their first album. Like, that was banging, I think, 93, 94. That was my first, my freshman year of college. Me. So, yeah, oh boy, that was, oh, that was Southern Playlistic, yeah. Southern Playlistic, yeah. Like, that shit, that, Change the game like that's that's what got me into southern hip-hop was outcast diana ross or anita baker see now you just unfair (laughs) that's tough even though i would say this anita baker kind of kind of sounds like she yawning when she don't, sings. Don't even, don't even, don't even <laughs> say it. So, Why you gonna make me fight you? Today? I'm just saying. Like I can't, I'm telling you, when I hear her songs, I was like, "Yo, I'm really yawning." Like it's crazy. Who you got? You know what? So Anita. Um, so I, as you know, Diana. Diana is actually from Detroit, right? Anita is, I believe, she's originally from Toledo. Toledo yes, is basically yes. a suburb she of moved, Detroit. Foster kid. Yeah, she. Yeah, she did. So. Um, but in terms of what's been more meaningful to my life, Diana Ross is an icon, but I'm going with Anita. I mean, her like compositions, I get every now and again, you know, I just like to stir up shit. So it's like, um, when with pop culture stuff and I, I will debate anybody. I think compositions as much as I love, you know, angel, or I should say the songstress and rapture, man, I think compositions are best album, and I'm just gonna say that. Like, I, like I gotta tap. Back, I gotta tap back in. in. I gotta tap back in and listen. Dude, tap to in it. the compositions. It's it's just it's incredible. Because that's the one with soul inspiration, fairy tales. Like, talk to me. Like, there is it's no skips on compositions. Not a one. Not a one. <laughs> so anyway, so are we gonna go Bad Boy Pistons from the '88, you know '89, '90 that era. Bad Boy Pistons. Or the 2004 Pistons with Rashid and Chauncey? And uh, real- going Bad Boy. Bad Boys? Bad boy. I, yeah, I mean, Isaiah was like my favorite NBA player um, forever. I mean, I, he still is, I mean, to be honest. So, uh, and then, you know, I, I'm looking at the time <laughs> when their success happened in Detroit. You know, we the only time Detroit was ever on the national news during that time was when we were leading the country in, mur- in murders, right? And so... 
you have this team that embodied not that the the Ben Wallace, Rasheed Wallace Pistons didn't because they also did as well. Um, but that team like was so much. It was so fused to the identity of the city. It was unbelievable. And, that, and for Isaiah Thomas to play there his whole career, I have to go with them. I got two more. And then we're going to wrap it up. I got two more on, on the hot seat with some dude. Two more. It's going to get spicy. Extra spicy on these last two. You told me you was from Detroit. You from the trenches, right? You said you was from the trenches. Yeah. You from I the said trenches. I'm from the real hood. You from the, the real hood, hood, not the rap hood, y'all. Mm-hmm. So I got to ask you. Captain Crunch. I'm talking about the cereal. Not Michael Jackson outfit. We're talking about Captain Crunch or King Vitamin. See, why did I know this? <laughs> <laughs> as soon as you said Captain Crunch, I was like, <laughs> he gonna say King Vitamin. It's inevitable. It's inevitable. I mean... So which know, one Which say, one stuck to the roof of your mouth the best? That's the way you answer that. Oh, shit. Uh, King Vitamin. King yeah, Vitamin. Like, King Vitamin is real. I mean, that, like, they is real. I, I'm a... I'm going to reluctantly go with Captain Crunch, but King Vitamin is like 1A. They right underneath. Wick, like, a, wick approved. Wick approved. It, it is super wick. Like, I was, yeah, man. Like, ooh, <laughs> yeah, now you making me rethink it. Like, <laughs> they don't know about that. I'm really, they, they, they ain't ready for that. They, they not ready, ready for this. this. Like, this podcast, I'm telling you, they not ready for this type of vibe. So, the last one, this going to be the spiciest one. Chappelle show or Martin? Now you really plan for keeps here. Okay, so um, I'm gonna say Martin. I watch Martin every night. Me and my husband watch it every single night because you know it's syndicated on like three different networks. Yeah, it's on every channel now. I'm happy as hell. I'm, it's on almost every channel, yeah. like Law and Order, Man, SVU. Like- it's the same, and like Chappelle show was obviously brilliant. But the the thing about Martin is like the first probably three seasons, like it was no like everything was a can't miss. Like nothing didn't hit. Like everything hit is is what I'm saying. And because uh, matter of fact, uh, what was the uh, <laughs> I think the one um, last night was the one where Keith Washington was on. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh he was. Oh he right. was so jealous. He was so well, he was, jealous. And he was super jealous, right? It's like it, it is. It's really remarkable. And so I have a lot more appreciation for for Martin. Um, and I, like I appreciated the Chappelle Show when it was out. I love Martin. It was it was out, but like my level of appreciation for that show even now, seeing how difficult it is for um, black shows to succeed period and then we're talking about a show that was built around black friendship and black love uh i mean i I really think like they they set a standard that has been very very hard to match now what's interesting though is that what i mean when you go what was better martin or fresh prince because Mm. the only reason i say that is that's another show i appreciate more now in hindsight it's like the thing about Martin, obviously, the way Martin ended is going to, you know, that it, it was problematic because, like, that last season was bad. I mean, it really was. You could feel but, it. You could kind of feel it when yeah, you were watching the show. Yeah, energy was off, and they were, like, clearly grasping at straws because of, obviously, the internal drama that was happening on the show. But I actually have been pleasantly surprised with how many serious subjects that the Fresh Prince handled. I think 
it, it may not be a funnier show. I think Martin's show was funny because the highs are so high. But I think Fresh Prince might be the more well-rounded show. Yeah, a lot of family, a lot of family situations, a lot of family scenarios that like everyday people could relate to. It was, it was brilliant. Yeah, it was. But Martin, man, it's it's just hard, man, because like even if you've seen the episode a thousand times, I mean the Biggie episode, the um the one where he was uh, trying to act like he was Nino from New Jack City, chilling in the <laughs> island, like that's just so it's so good. But we had you on for a long time. Jamel Hill, The Thrill, I appreciate you coming on to Some Dude Show. It was so fun. We got to do this again. Yeah, anytime. And, like, man, I, I am really proud of you. Um, and it feels weird to say because, you know, it's not like this is the kind of attention you were necessarily looking for. You were being yourself. Yeah. And those are the people that I root for the most. It's like you have not changed at all. And, um, you know, it's just great that, like, now people have a better and bigger opportunity um to hear how crazy you are so i appreciate you <laughs> yes there you have it jamel hill i appreciate you all right take care thank you